You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. Good morning, church family. Glad to see you all in this beautiful winter wonderland. You know, last week we were talking about how, how God's creation gives us truths from Scripture or depicts truths from Scripture. And again, it just, I, as I just prayed, it reminds us of how God washes us clean, makes us white as snow. And all this snow this morning has brought the verse in mind, Romans 5, maybe you know, where, where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. It seems like snow has abounded all the more this morning, but praise God uh, that you have all made it here. And if you're joining us online, praise God that you could join us online as well. So as, as we said last week, we are going back this morning to our Gospel of John series. In, back in March 2021, we started the study in the Gospel of John, and we're pick, we, we've had some breaks in between, but we're picking up on it this morning. Again, just to, to sort of give you a brief um, schedule or rundown of how our sermon's uh, schedule is going to look like for the next couple of months, we're going to be in the Gospel of John until Easter, where we'll take a break because Easter is usually uh, a big day for us where we invite... Uh, friends and family to um, our Easter service. And after Easter, there'll be a short break. And then right after that, we'll get back into the Gospel of John and we'll go straight into uh, the weekend where we will be going to our refocus retreat. So we'll be in the Gospel of John for quite some time. Again, if you want to catch up to where we are in this book, uh, in this study, we are in chapter 7, as we just read from this morning. And you can definitely read past chapters to come back to where we are to refresh your your mind of where we are in the study. Also, all the podcasts, all the sermons that we've done already in this book is, is online for you as a resource. Now, if you remember back, all the way back in March 2021, when we first started this series, the, the purpose of why we wanted to study the Gospel of John was to propagate the sufficiency of Christ the supremacy of the gospel and to cultivate a deeper relationship with our Savior by getting to know him more through discovering his character, discovering who he is in the gospel of John. And of course, this lines up with John's own, the, the Apostle John's own purpose for as to why he wrote this gospel. If you remember, the thesis of John's gospel is in John chapter 20, verse 31. It says, but these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. John has three purposes for this gospel. The first is to persuade his readers that, uh, of the sufficiency of Christ, that Jesus was in fact the Savior, the Messiah, the Christ. Secondly, it was to provide examples that validated Christ's claim as the Son of God. As we've studied so far in the, in, in throughout uh, the Gospel of John, that claim of being the Son of God made Christ equal with God in nature, in power, and authority. And John's purpose for this Gospel is to show examples, evidence of how Christ was indeed God in human flesh. And of course, the last portion of um, John's thesis here is to propagate the gospel that leads to life in God. It's, again, he says, by believing that you might have life in his name. This is an evangelistic book. His desire is for unbelievers to read this gospel and truly come to faith, truly come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that they might have life in his name. 
Now, we've seen this thesis play out all throughout the Gospel of John so thus far, and from the beginning, all the way from the beginning chapters. In chapter 1, we've got that great exposition of who Christ was. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It describes how nothing was made without Him. It describes Christ in His essence, in the nature of His divinity, as the Word of God, as the Son of God. Of course, it also introduces us to the, his first witnesses. If you recall that, John the Baptist was his first witness, and of course, his disciples that he enlisted in that first chapter. Then chapter 2, we go on to Christ's first miracle, the wedding at Cana, turning water into wine. And of course, that displayed his divinity, creating wine out of nothing. Of course, using that water, but again, if, if you remember that study, it, the the, the the purpose of that miracle was to demonstrate his divine power to create something out of nothing. And of course, we even saw how at, right after that, Christ's zeal at the temple, driving out the, the sellers from the temple, once again fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies that the Messiah would be the zeal of the Lord. In chapter 3, we saw that great discourse between Nicodemus and Jesus himself. The idea of being born again and how we understood it, that, that Jesus' metaphor of being born again was that similar to how we have no choice in being born physically, that we too have no choice in being born spiritually, being born again spiritually, that it is all work of the Holy Spirit regenerating the sinner's heart. And then from that regenerated heart comes faith. And so there, there's that great discourse that takes place there in chapter 3, and then chapter 4, and uh, chap all the way to chapter 5, we get these great scenes of Christ speaking and evangelizing to the Samaritan woman, a Gentile, and speaking to the official son, doing that great miracle there. Then again in chapter 5, Christ performs another great miracle. He heals the paralytic man at the pool of Bethesda. And of course, that causes a whole bunch of trouble for Christ because he does it on the Sabbath. But of course, he's declaring that he is Lord of the Sabbath. That, those, that these religious leaders who, who legalistically try to enforce these Sabbath laws on Christ, those laws did not apply to the God who created the Sabbath. And so Jesus, and even and in that whole discourse, that whole argument that Jesus has with, with those, those Pharisees or religious leaders, he, of course, Jesus brings to his defense witnesses, John the Baptist, the Father himself, God the Father, and, of course, the Word of God to stand as witnesses for his behalf. Then where we left off last year in chapter 6 was right after the feeding of the 5,000, that great miracle once again displaying the divinity of Christ, creating something out of nothing. And, of course, Jesus walking on the water shortly after that to demonstrate to his disciples specifically his own, his own power over nature. And we got that, that great first I am statement from Christ saying that I am the bread of life. Connecting it all, of course, to the manna that fell from heaven in the wilderness during the Old Testament we see this a lot, actually, if you remember, John relates a lot of these scenarios, a lot of these scenes, these miracles that Jesus performs back to the Old Testament as a fulfillment, saying that Jesus was indeed the Messiah that God had sent. Now, again, that's where we left off after Christ reveals everything, after Christ performs these miracles. And what's interesting is at the end of chapter 6 is that after he... he he performs these miracles, the crowd follows him. He then gives that great, that great 
invitation to eat of his flesh and drink of his blood, which then scares everybody away. And the only ones who stick around him at the end is his 12 disciples. That's where we're picking up in chapter 7. Hopefully that was a good refresher for everyone. Now, so this week and next week, we're, as we begin to look at the opening chapters of, uh, of, the, of chapter 7 of Gospel of John, we, we need to be reminded that chapter 7 and chapter 8 are actually very much connected. John is continuing once again to show that Jesus is in fact the Son of God, that he is God in human flesh, that he's equal to God in power, in authority, and in nature. And how John, uh, and, and not only in, in those terms, but also equal to God in will, in desire, in purpose. And how John shows us this is how Christ himself submits to the timing of God. John, and, and of course, in, in the other Gospels as well, we see Christ's dedication to the timing and to the schedule, the timeline of God. He, for, for example, he forbids people in some instances or after he performs a miracle. He forbids people to, to talk about the miracles that he performed. Because again, it wasn't his time. In some, other, in some other passages, we see how after exercising some demons from some people, Jesus, or he even silences the demons who knew full well who his true identity was as a son of God. And like I said in chapter 6, he passes up this chance to have this great following, to have this mass popularity amongst the people by, by inviting them to eat of his flesh and drink of his blood. All because, again, Christ was in step with the Father's will, the, the, the Father's timing and schedule. See, this, this is very much illustrated even more in our passage, in this, in this situation that arises between Christ and his brothers. It shows greatly his dedication to God's timing, despite even the, the protests of his own siblings. Christ's dedication to the Lord's timing, the sovereignty of God, was impeccable. And so for that reason, my hope for us this morning is to learn from our Savior how to wait on God's timing. How to wait on God's time where, where we don't compromise despite the circumstances around us, despite others telling us to do something, despite our own flesh wanting and craving and desiring after certain things. How to wait on God's timing. See, maybe you're here this morning and you're waiting on something from God. Maybe you've been praying about something for quite some time. Or you're, you're, you're looking for something in your life and you've been waiting and waiting and it hasn't come yet. And the frustration is building. And the, the hope that you once had initially is sort of diminishing. And doubts are starting to creep in. And maybe opportunities to, to, to get what you want immediately in, in, a, in a way that's not from God is arising. Maybe you're not getting the answers that you want, or it's not showing up the way that you want it. Maybe the temptation to doubt or to act independently of God has arisen in your life in the waiting. Well, my hope is that we would learn from the response of the Savior. That we would learn this morning from how Christ himself waited upon the timing of God in his circumstance, in his earthly ministry. And again, despite the words of his own brothers, of his own families, that he stood true to his conviction, to, to the timing of the Father when it came to his own life and his own purposes and ministry. 
So my hope for us this morning is we truly understand, truly learn how to wait on God's timing. That's the title of the sermon, by the way, how to wait on God's timing. So let's get into our passage. Let's exegete our passage, get into it verse by verse and unpack it for us. Let's go to verse 1. It says, after this, after this, this is sort of a connecting uh, phrase from chapter 6 to chapter 7, but as we'll discover, it's about seven months since, since chapter 6 and chapter 7, because in chapter 6, the beginning of chapter 6, it, if you recall, that takes place at the beginning of Passover, and in chapter 7, it's the Feast of Booths. It's about seven months in between those two festivities, and so it goes on to say, after this, after the events of chapter 6, Jesus went about in Galilee. That phrasing went about is sort of a, is sort of a metaphor to say that Jesus was, went on teaching in Galilee, going about his ministry in, uh, in Galilee. He goes on to say he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. You remember this from chapter 5. After, after Jesus had healed the paralytic man in the Sabbath and after he claimed to be equal with God in nature and power and authority. The Jews, the religious leaders, wanted to kill him. Judea, by the way, was a province where Jerusalem was, a southern region of, of Israel. And so he would not go back there, as our pastor says, because the people wanted to kill him. John 5.18 says, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. As you mentioned back then as well, if ever you hear an individual, a Muslim maybe, who claims that Jesus never claimed to be God, point them to this verse. Point them to the next couple of chapters as well, because there is no doubt that Christ himself claimed to be the Son of God. Again, equal with God in nature and power and authority, and we'll see that come out even more in chapter 8. In verse 2 of our passage, it says, So now the Jews' feast of booths, at hand, just a hand of just a show of hands. Who celebrated the Feast of Booths this past year? All right, we had the one guy. <laughs> uh, no, no. So the feast, the Feast of Booths. Maybe you don't know what it is, and that's fine. It's a it's a harvest festival in in Jewish tradition and Jewish culture. Um, there's three festivities that the Jews always celebrated. It was Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths, or in some translations, the Feast of Tabernacles. The, again, it was a harvest feast. It, it would, the, the, the tradition was they, they would go out into the fields, they would build tents for themselves out of sticks and leaves and whatnot, and they would bring in the first fruits of the land. This usually took place in October, uh, according to historians. Now, we get this idea of the Feast of Booths from Leviticus chapter 23. You can write this down as reference, but let me read some of these, um, these passages for you. Leviticus chapter 23, verse 33 says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, and for seven days is the Feast of Booths to the Lord. On the 15th day, verse 39, on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feasts of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And then verse 43, it says, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So again, it's a week-long celebration of harvest, of worship, of resting in the Lord, remembering the Jews' journey in, in the wilderness, recalling to mind how God had provided for them throughout the wilderness, uh, again, setting up these tabernacles, these booths, uh, 
to recall that whole incident. Now, there was three, three rites, three specific religious rites that the, that the Jews celebrated during the Feast of Booths. Uh, in the temple specifically. The first was worshiping of God at dawn. They had a whole ceremony at dawn where right as the sun rises, they would worship the Lord. This was to signify the coming light and worshiping God that way. Secondly, it was to worship, they, they worship God at night by lighting menorahs. There was a whole procession where the priests in the temple would light menorahs and they would have a whole procession throughout the temple. And that was to symbolize the, the pillar of fire that the Jews uh, followed in the wilderness back in Moses' day, if you know that story. And lastly, there was a, a, a drink offering uh, that was presented to God throughout those seven days, where they would draw water every day, signifying uh, the promise of the living water that we read about in Isaiah that would eventually come through the temple of God. Now, you're wondering, why is Pastor Ian talking about all this? Well, it's going to tie into chapter 7 and chapter 8. Specifically, when in chapter 7, when Jesus says that he's the one who's going to provide the living water. And then in chapter 8, when we get the second I am statement of Christ, when he says that he is the light of the world. He's tying it specifically to the Jewish festivals of the Feast of Booths, because those are the things that are being celebrated during that, touch. Again, uh, during that time. So again, we'll, we'll unpack that as we come across that in um, the following weeks. So then verse 3, let's go to verse 3 of our passage. This is the introduction of Jesus' brothers. So his brothers said to him, now we, we have introductions or the names of Jesus' brothers from the other Gospels. In Mark chapter 6, verse 3, we know Jesus' brothers to be James. If you ever read the book of James, that is his brother. James, who would later be the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He had Joseph, or in some translations, translations, Joseph. And then you had Jude, or in some translations, translations Judas. And then, of course, he had the last brother, Simon. I, I always thought this was great because there's like a naming scheme in Jesus' family. He had Jesus, James, Joseph, and Jude, and then Simon. That's like, <laughs> he's a, it's kind of like Joel, Joshua, Darnell. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the, the one who's left outside of the, the naming scheme, which, is, which, is, which I'm sure there's a reason for that. Um, but that, that, that's, I thought that was great. If you're ever going to have kids and you want to name them all J's or name them all starting a letter, it's biblical, apparently, right? It's in Jesus' family. Uh, so, so those are his brothers. Actually, it says in, in Mark as well that Jesus had sisters. So if, if anyone ever argued that Mary stayed a virgin the rest of her life after giving uh, birth to Christ, well, it says clearly in Scripture that Jesus had half-brothers, again, because uh, Mary and, and Joseph, of course, had more kids after Christ. So, so we read the introduction to his brothers, right? Uh, they have some words to say to, to, to Jesus. What, does, what do his brothers say? They say to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now, it's interesting what Jesus' brothers say here. At, at a first glance, it's, it almost seems like they're very encouraging, but there's only really two motivations as to why they're saying these things. The first is that they want to see miracles for himself, or they wanted to see miracles for themselves. Again, Feast of Booths is happening, the entire family is going down to Jerusalem to celebrate this festivity. These brothers want to see these miracles that Jesus has been performing for these past few years. 
Let's go down to Judea so we can see you perform these miracles, so, so that we can see your disciples perform these miracles. That's one reason. They wanted to see them, the miracles for themselves. The other reason is that they too thought that Jesus was like a social or political Messiah, similar to the rest of the, the Jews of Israel who, wanted, who were expecting a Messiah to liberate them from, from Rome. It's, it heavily implied that they wanted the same thing. Instead of Jesus being a spiritual Messiah to his brothers, they wanted Jesus to be that liberator that, that, that everyone else was hoping he would be. Again, that's why it says, if he seeks to be known openly, the, the brothers literally say to him, if you, if you plan to be publicly recognized as the Messiah, then go down to Judea. Judea, or again, is where Jerusalem was. That's where the temple was. That's where the seat of power was in Israel. If you wanted to be recognized as the king of the Jews, the liberator from Rome, then go down to the temple where, you're, where, the, where your power needs to be won, where you need to win the people. And this is the perfect timing. Tons of people are, are, are pilgriming over to the temple in Jerusalem. So you have a great audience. Go down to Jerusalem. Well, regardless of whatever conclusion these brothers may have had, read in verse 5 the real reason. The real reasons why they were saying this. For not even his brothers believed in him. His brothers were unbelievers. If ever you've had the, the, the issues of having to evangelize to unbelieving relatives or friends and families, but you had the problem that most people often have or they can't seem to get through to them because they're your family or they, they, they sort of know you from back when you were a kid and being rebellious and, and fighting kids in Sunday school, right? Like, that's my story. Um, but have you ever had that difficulty where it's been difficult and hard to evangelize to your own relatives? Well, you're in good company. Because again, in our passage, and actually in, even in the other Gospels, it tells us how Jesus' own brothers were unbelievers. In Mark chapter 3, verse 21, it says, after, after preaching, after his great miracle, when his family had heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. His own brothers, Jesus' own brothers, were convinced that Jesus was crazy. In fact, we, only, we read in Scripture that they only believed after the resurrection. That Jesus specifically appeared to his relatives, to his family. In 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about how after, after Jesus had risen, that he visited James, the other brother, the second oldest, and and to, to show that he was indeed the Messiah that he had risen. And so his brothers only came to faith after the resurrection. Now, despite the pressures that Jesus receives from his brothers, we, we look at verse 6 of our passage. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that, it works, that its works are evil. Jesus now begins to talk about God's timing. He, talk, he mentions the word time three times. Kairos, meaning the fitting season, most suitable, the most favorable or opportune moment, the right moment. He's saying, my moment hasn't come yet. My time has not come yet. And again, he repeats it three times. This is a callback to his first miracle in John chapter 2, verse 4. If you remember that, when, when the, the wine had, had run out and his mother had come to him, and Jesus says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. The, 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 this time, the suitable, the most favorable moment, 
that he's talking about is him being glorified, him being exalted as the Savior. Remember, his brothers wanted him to go down to Judea, to Jerusalem, to show that he is the Messiah, to show the wonders, miracles, all of that, so that people would believe. But Jesus is saying, it's not my time to be exalted yet. And then I love it because in, in, that, in those verses that we just read, Jesus flips the table on his brothers. He says, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you. It's interesting because what's happening here is Jesus is rebuking his brothers. He's saying, your time, their time is always here to freely move about. No one's trying to kill you. No, one's, no one hates you. You can go wherever you want because you're part of the world. Because they were of the world. They were unbelievers, as verse 5 said. Jesus was saying, your time is now. You can go wherever you want. They don't hate you. They hate me because I'm not of this world. And I'm telling the world that, they, that they, their works are evil. Again, he says, but it hates me because I testify about it. I testify about the evil, the sin of the world. This is, again, a callback to John chapter 3, verse 19, when he says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. This is what Jesus was testifying about. Jesus was drawing a clear comparison between him and his brothers who, who were of the world, who was loved by the world, who was not hated by the world, who could go about in the world to do whatever they wanted, who affirmed even the things of this world, even the ideologies of the world, versus himself who was calling out sin. As I was doing this research, uh, reading some commentaries, I read this one commentary by John Calvin, and he says, Peace with the world can only be purchased by a wicked consent to vices and to every kind of wickedness. That's the only reason why you would be at peace with the world. If you are enable, if you are consenting to the evils of the world. If you ever heard that idea that Jesus only came to love, well, he's literally calling his own brothers out for being unbelievers, for being sinners. For not believing. In fact, in Matthew chapter 10, it says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword, for I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. The gospel divides people. It divides families. It divides between unbelievers and those who believe. That's the reality of what Jesus came to bring. It's not all just about love, love, love. Again, he's rebuking his own brothers here. Then in verse 8 of our passage, this is what Jesus says. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast for my time. Third time he says it. My time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. This was Christ's commitment to the timing, to the schedule of the Father. Even though, as we'll read in the next, next week, in the next uh, following passages, that Jesus would eventually go up to Judea, even though uh, moments later, we see that Jesus would not even compromise that, would not compromise the timing of God. Not until God would let him, not until the Father would permit him to go up to Judea would he go. So now some lessons on God's timing. How to wait on God's timing. First and foremost, do not forsake God's timing. Do not forsake God's timing. Jesus' brothers were suggesting that he go up to Jerusalem. 
During, again, the Feast of Booths where there would be a large number of people, a lot of people to, to witness his miracles. It was a perfect place for him to, to be crowned the king of the Jews to, to get the title as the Messiah. Of course, a gather of following, all of that. It was a place to be declared the Messiah. But, and again, that's why they say no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you're the Messiah, go now. Go show yourself to the world. But again, remember, this is not the first time that Jesus denies the opportunity to seize power, to to seize a following, to seize a popularity in his ministry. Again, the the previous chapter, after feeding the 5,000, 5,000 just men. That's not including the women and children. In chapter 6, Jesus could have had a massive following. But again, he, he denies all of them. And then only the disciples remained. All of that because he was so committed to God's timing. God's timing, his schedule, God, God's schedule for Jesus still had more ministry to be done, more healings to be done, more sermons to be preached. He still had the triumphal entry to look forward to, to, forward to but also the betrayal, the suffering leading up to the cross, his death on the cross. All before Christ would be elevated to glory. All before Christ would be recognized as the Messiah. Now, humanly speaking, you know, why go through all of that, right? Why go through that entire process, that entire, that entire schedule of suffering, of betrayal, of even death, when you could literally, as his brothers had suggested, just go down to Jerusalem and win over the masses, convince the masses with some miracles, and he would be declared king. But also it would be outside of God's will. See, oftentimes the temptation to forsake God's timing is fueled by convenience. The quicker, the faster, the less hassle, the less work, the immediate help, the immediate comfort, the quick fix, the quick solution that often bypasses the timing of God so that we can get what we want. Our our willingness to compromise God's timing is often driven by convenience. And our society is very much this, right? Bypass the work, the effort, the journey to get something, to get somewhere faster. That's why everything is automated these days. It's so ingrained in our flesh, that quick fix, that, that, that quick dopamine high, that we are willing to trade even the, the perfect timing of God just to get that momentary satisfaction, that momentary comfort, that convenience. Whether it's an unbiblical relationship or a, a shady business endeavor the, the, or the indulgement of the flesh, whatever whatever thing that we turn to that is outside of God's timing and will. And Jesus was faced with that similar temptation. He, again, he was going to experience the suffering to come as the Savior of the world, or he could have taken the route that his brothers had suggested and just win the people with a bunch of miracles. But what we see in our passage is that Jesus chose obedience over convenience. He chose relationship with the Father over relief from some other thing. He chose obedience over convenience. In fact, we read about this in Hebrews chapter 12, 
verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Christ endured the inconvenience of the cross, the suffering of the cross, the long road to death, the timing of the Father, because his eyes was fixed on the joy he would experience at the Father's side. That's what the joy that he's referring to in Hebrews here. Who for the joy that was set before him, what was that joy? Sitting at the right hand of the throne of the Father. That relationship with God. Listen, it's the same for us. When we compromise the timing of God in our lives for convenience, for a momentary fix, for relief or comfort, it's often at the cost of our fellowship with God. It's not relationship, because we understand we cannot lose our relationship with God, but our fellowship with God, us walking out of step with the Spirit, us quenching the Spirit, us being outside of the Father's will. Our convenience is often at the cost of our fellowship with God. Because we want everything to work in our timeline. We, and oftentimes our timeline is out of, out of sync of God's timeline, of His schedule. That, that journey, that process of sanctification is what he wants us to go through in that waiting, in, in, in that process of the in-between, of, of, of asking God and, and, and that promise being fulfilled. It's that process in between that God wants us to go through. And here's the remedy for us. If, if you're finding yourself in that struggle this morning, set your eyes on the joy of the Father. Set your eyes in, in the joy that we have in our relationship with God. Like Jesus, come to resolve that, uh, to, to see that, your, your, that obedience and fellowship with the Father is more valuable, it's, it's irre, irreplaceable, worth more than that quick fix, that momentary convenience. Do not forsake God's timing. Secondly, the, the second lesson we get from this passage is do not force God's timing. Do not force God's timing. Remember, part of Jesus' brother's suggestion was stemming really from doubt. Verse 5 again says that they were unbelievers. They wanted Jesus to go to Jerusalem and display the, his miracles, his wonders, so that they too could see the miracles. It was almost kind of like a test, really. It's it go down to Jerusalem. If, the, if the, the politicians, if the religious leaders accept you as the Messiah, then we will believe too. That's why they were encouraging Jesus to go down during this festival. Again, they were similarly testing God. But if you recall, when Jesus was tested in the wilderness, and the devil had tempted Christ to jump off the temple, that the angels might catch him, and Jesus said, you will not test the Lord your God. All of that, again, is is coming not from a request of faith, but really from doubt. If you do this, then I'll believe. Jesus, had, Jesus' brothers had the same idea. If Jerusalem accepts you, then we will believe that you are truly the Messiah. Similarly, 
There are times that we can do things in the guise of trusting God, but really we are testing God to see if he will keep his word, keep his promises. Or really because we doubt altogether that he actually will keep his word, that he is actually able. Maybe it's the idea of knowing that God's word tells us to, to, to wait for a good Christian godly man in our life. To, to sweep us off our feet and you know, lead us in, in, in the spirit, all of that good stuff. Because that's what Scripture calls us to do. Ladies, that's what Scripture calls us to do. Not to settle for unbelievers. But instead we choose to maybe date or see an unbeliever because, well, God can save him anyways, right? Or maybe it's the idea of, well, you know, knowing that sex is specifically for those who are married between husband and wife. But, well, we're, we're engaged anyways, right? So why not push our boundaries? We're going to get married anyway, so why not? Or we're burning in lust. The Bible says that we should get married soon, right? Because it's there in Scripture somewhere that if you're burning in lust, you get married soon. Well, the Bible also says that the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. But you see how we can sometimes seek to compromise God's timing seemingly under guise of faith and conviction when in reality it's either to appease the flesh or getting what we want sooner or because we doubt God altogether really I don't think God's going to provide that that wife for me anymore so I'm going to go find her myself in the world do you think that's God's will for you how about this when, when we know what God is telling us specifically, clearly, in his word. But instead of waiting, we act on our own plans. We act on our own timing. God is sovereign anyways. He will work everything out for for good, right? That's trying to force God's hand. That is testing God. Not Not out of faith, completely out of doubt. God, I'll believe if you do this for me, if you work this way. So I'm going to do this. Remember the story of Abraham, what happened there? I was reading about this just the other day, Genesis 15 and 16. God promises Abraham that he's going to be a father of many nations. What happens right after in the next chapter? Sarah says, well, I'm barren, so go sleep with my servant. And then the child from there is, 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 is a child of promise that the Lord, that, the, that God had promised to you. They compromised God's timing because we read later that, of course, Sarah, even in her old age, gave birth to Isaac. But what came from that single compromise, what followed from that single compromise of Abraham sleeping with with Hagar just for the sake of, of getting on his own time is years and decades and generations of infighting between the descendants of Isaac, who are the Jews, and the descendants of Ishmael, who are the Arabs. All from that one compromise. All because Sarah and Abraham were not patient enough for God's timing. And were willing to try to force God's hand in the situation. And really, we can do the same. 
We can confuse our desperation for conviction. And in reality, again, it's just doubt. In, in our passage, Christ's answer to his, bro, to his brothers is, it's not his time. It's not his time yet. Jesus was so rested in the Father's schedule, in the Father's will, he had complete trust in the Father's timing that he didn't need to go down to, 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 to Jerusalem that day for that feast. Knowing that God and his sovereignty would eventually exalt him, would eventually bring him to that place. Knowing eventually that God would act. He didn't need to prove God's faithfulness by forcing God's hand. And remember, this was during the Feast of Booths. As we read earlier, it was a time of solemn rest. A time to remember that who was in control? God. It was a festivity to remember that it was God who led them through the wilderness in his timing. Do not force God's timing. You know, I think it's, it's better to wait in doubt than to act in doubt. It's better to struggle in the waiting with your doubts and fears. That's similar to you know, that, that request of, you know, I believe, but help my unbelief. It's okay to doubt. It's, it's, it's human to doubt. It's, it's better to wrestle in your doubts and your fears in the waiting with God than to act preemptively in an effort to force, God, in an effort to force God's hand. Do not force God's timing. Lastly, third lesson we get from this passage, do not fear God's timing. Do not fear God's timing. The reason why Christ did not forsake the Father's timing, why he did not force the Father's timing is because he, as we have been saying, he trusted in the Father's will, in, in the Father's purposes, in the Father's schedule. Even though, by the way, he fully knew, he fully knew where that schedule was going to lead to, the cross. He did not waver. He did not fear it. See, part of waiting on God's timing is that we trust in him in the waiting. That we trust that his ways are not our ways, that his thoughts are not our thoughts, that it is higher, that a day to him is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day to the sovereign God. Trusting that his timing is best, even when suffering is involved. And oftentimes the reason why we diverge from God's timing, from God's will, is because we think our timing is best. That our plans, our schedule, our thoughts are greater. That whatever plans that we can conceive for our lives is, is more efficient, more effective, more fruitful, than what God can ever dream about or what God could ever plan about in our life. God, you're sovereign, but let's do it my way. Let's do it on my schedule. How ridiculous does that sound? Why is often why we get so frustrated because God's timing is not on our schedule, is not being done the way that we expect it to happen. That's where oftentimes doubt and fear comes because all because God's not doing it the way that we want it to happen. All because, all because our timing is not in sync with God's. 
Sometimes we think that does, does God actually have, in the waiting, sometimes we think, does God actually have my best interests in mind? Is his plan best for me? And the answer is yes, absolutely. Listen, in, in Christ, the, Father's, the Father loves you with the same love as he has for the Son, as he has for Christ. As Paul says, the promises of God in Christ are yes and amen to the glory of God. His plans, his promises is best for us. But those promises come on his timing. Those, the, 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 again, the, the purpose that we see, the purpose, is the, the, the purpose of this opening passage of chapter 7 is to show how how in sync Christ was with the timing of God, that his will was the same as the Father's, that he, was, he, he, he did not diverge from it one single bit. And in the same way, that, that is our example. That, that's what we should pursue. Have faith. Listen, whatever you're waiting on, whatever you're asking God for, have faith. God is faithful. And his plans for you, his purposes for you, the timing that you're in right now, is better, is greater than whatever plan that you can conceive of in this life. Rest in the truth. Listen, do you realize that God is not in, not in a hurry? God is never in a hurry. God created time. He exists outside of time. At the same time, He's present within our time. God is not dictated by our schedule, our months and years. He is not in a hurry. And if he is not in a hurry, we can rest in that truth. We can rest in the truth that, listen, if, it, if the God of the universe who carries and all the, the problems of the world in, his, in, the palms of, in the palms of his hands, who holds everything together according to Colossians, if he's not worried, if he's not in a hurry to get you to where you want to go, then you shouldn't be either. See, the invitation for us is to, to trust in God's timing. To surrender our will with His will. Really, what's happening here is, is a glimpse of, of Christ's statement towards the end where He says, not my will be done, but yours. Not my timing, but your timing. And remember the the, the in-between of where we are waiting for the promises of God in our lives to be fulfilled is, is a process to sanctify us, is to cultivate in us endurance and character and hope. It's where we experience God's grace all the more, His love all the more. So don't hate it. Romans chapter 5 says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That's the, that's the, that's the reason for this whole process. That's the reason for our waiting, that, the timing of God. God's not just getting you to wait for no reason. It's to sanctify you in the in-between. To sanctify you in the process. And I, and I love what Paul says right after in verse 6. For while we were still weak, 
at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. In his perfect timing, since he, he created the universe to, to the fall of man, that's a long gap between the fall and Christ's coming. But all of it has served God's process or God's purposes to bring about the Messiah into the world and to bring about the salvation that he has freely given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Listen, if you are in that season in life where you are waiting on God, where you are waiting on his timing, I invite you, I invite you to put your trust in the God who is not hurried, the God who is not worried, the God who is in control of it all, who knows the end already. Put your trust in him. Put your trust in the sovereign God who has sent his son in the perfect timing to die for us sinners and save us. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.